Uh, you can remain seated this morning, but turn your attention to 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And then the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And even I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your halters, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I... Even I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall announce Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall announce to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of abel Maholi, you shall announce to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The word of the Lord. 
We're in our third week in our sermon series on Elijah and Elisha. The last three weeks we've been following Elijah, and I would say that as we get to 1 Kings 19, it's safe to say that the story did not go how Elijah thought it would go. Things turned out a little bit differently. Last week in chapter 18, Israel saw the fire that came down from heaven, consumed the bull, consumed the altar, and consumed the water and the trench. And you would think after seeing that, that 1 Kings 19 would be a story of Israel's newfound repentance. This story of turning back to God that made himself clearly known, clearly visible, and made himself known as clearly God. Not Baal, I am God. You'd think that we'd see them burning their Baal idols, tearing down their altars. Newfound devotion and being reacquainted with this new God, but you don't see that. And King Ahab comes back, And he immediately tells Queen Jezebel about what happens. And she doubles down. She doesn't turn to God. She doesn't ask for repentance. She becomes enraged about what happened. She issues a decree to Elijah and she says, May God do to me what you did to the prophets of Baal if you are not dead by tomorrow. She puts up wanted posters all throughout the kingdom and Elijah once again is a wanted man. And he sees all of this happen and it didn't go how he expected and he's afraid. And he runs. He runs. He doesn't just like run down the street. He runs 130 miles south to a place called Beersheba. And he tells his servant to stay. He leaves the servant there. Why is that? Elijah's quitting the ministry. He's done. I have no need for you anymore. Stay here. Then he goes out into the wilderness, another day's journey, sits down under a broom tree, and he says, God, take my life. I'm out. I am done. I want nothing more to do with this. If you think about this picture of this exhausted man that we see, it's quite the contrast from what we've seen so far. That tension of knowing that two chapters ago, this is the man who walked into the very throne room of the king and said the very words of God, and they came to pass. And then he saw the the flour and the oil not run out with the widow. This is the same man who prayed that a boy would be raised from the dead when it had never happened before. And he prayed prayed to God that it would, and the boy comes back to life. And this is the same man that had the faith to pray for fire to come down from heaven and consume the bull, and it does, and he saw that happen. And then today, we see the complete opposite, where he is an emotional, psychological, spiritual, physical mess. He's a wreck. He is utterly crumbling. He's suicidal, sitting under a tree, asking God to die. Now, we have to ask ourselves in a passage like this, why is this story even here? Why tell this story? It's terrible marketing. Nobody wants to go into ministry and have that story. I don't. I'm sure you don't, but why tell it? And I think as we engage this story, we have to address some of our assumptions and preconceived notions about what faith and following God actually look like. We have a cultural phenomenon of uh, idealizing the lives of others and idealizing our own life, presenting reality as better and prettier than it actually is. Now take social media, for example. 
You think about um, sitting at work on a Tuesday morning. Somebody just posts pictures of their vacation they just got back from over the weekend. It's just beautiful, sandy beaches, and you're just sitting there thinking, that would be nice as you look over at this huge stack of papers that's going to take you all week to get through. Or the way you can see somebody post pictures, you know, of their them and their kids, a little selfie of everybody smiling at the park and makes the neighborhood park look like Disneyland. As you look over at your child just screaming and throwing a tantrum on the floor. You're like, ah, oh, wouldn't that be nice? And it creates these subtle expectations of what the good life looks like. It smiles and lollipops. That's what I want. I'd rather have that story. I think it just plays on our instincts to hide the ugly parts of our stories. Who gets on Facebook and posts a picture, a little smiling selfie on the way to work and says, you know what, and captions it with, I feel like a complete joke and I'm, I'm going to be found out because I'm going to do a you know, presentation today at work and I'm afraid everybody's going to realize I have no idea what I'm doing. Nobody posts that. And nobody posts a picture at the park with smiling kids that says with a caption, I actually, you know what, truth be told, I feel like a terrible mom and I'm failing my kids. We hide those parts. We idealize our stories even if we come here. If we're honest, you have a rough and difficult week and as soon as we come in here, we have a strong face. How did it go this week? How was your week? It was great. It was fine. And we hide the ugly parts and we tell our stories in a way that hides the things that we don't want to see. And I think we do the same thing with spirituality. You know, we look at a story, we look at pictures of like Elijah and maybe other heroes of the faith, and we kind of idealize their stories and make it better and prettier than it actually is. We think that a vibrant picture of uh, the spiritual life isn't messy, isn't difficult, it's always clean cut, and there's just, if I was really mature, I'd always just have this overabundance of faith that just got me through anything with a smile on my face. The greatness in the kingdom doesn't involve those things. If I was more mature, I wouldn't have doubt, I wouldn't have despair, I wouldn't be depressed, I wouldn't be discouraged. But in the end, we have to say, thank God the Bible does not tell it's stories the way we tell our stories. Imagine Elijah doing that. Having his cell phone in the wilderness. Just got fed by an angel. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> or he takes the selfie and he says, Just met with God on the mountaintop. Still small voice. Hashtag awesome. Truth be told, he's suicidal, doesn't want to live anymore, on the run for his life. And he wants nothing to do with God's story anymore. Why are these stories here? The Bible goes completely out of its way to tell us a different story. Think about Moses. Moses says, I don't actually want to do what you've asked me to do. I feel like I can't do it. I don't want to do what you asked me. Then you get to Jeremiah, and God tells Jeremiah to go and prophesy. And when he does, it just gets worse and worse. And Jeremiah says, you've deceived me. You have utterly deceived me. You know what he's calling God? He says, you're a liar. You're a liar. You have deceived me. You have told me it's going to work one way, and it doesn't. Then you get to John the Baptist, and he's in prison waiting to be beheaded. This is a man that Jesus said, there's no man that's greater that's born of a woman. And he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, and he has them ask Jesus a question, are you the one we're really looking for? Or should we wait for another? 
The Bible goes out of its way to tell us these stories because doubts and despair are not evidence of immaturity. Doubt and despair are inevitable if you want to pursue God. Because if you're going to be a part of his story and he increases and you decrease, it hurts. And he will break you down. But it's better. And maybe it's in these stories where he says to you, it's time to start looking at that despair and it's time to start looking at that doubt because these are the places I reveal myself. These are the places I give myself to you. But you're going to miss me if you're always telling a different story than is actually true. Give me what you have. He's not selling us a product. He's revealing himself. He's revealing himself in all of his complexity, in all of his seeming paradox, in all of his strange ways. But he does that in the same way that he does that through the context of showing us all of our complexity. That we're incredibly beautiful and broken at the same time. That we can have faith and be filled with doubt and despair at the same time. It's in these stories where God says, I don't want a nice pretty little picture. I want you just as you are because I want you to have me just as I am. So, we see Elijah on the run under a tree asking God to die, and he goes to sleep, not wanting to wake up. That's a rough day. I know some of you have prayed that prayer. I prayed that prayer years and years ago. It's dark days, and yet this is where God meets him. He wakes up, and he sees food made for him right next to his head. He wakes up, and there's an angel there. And he says, you need to sit up, rise, and eat. It's really strange, I'll be honest. But I think what we're being told here, and what Elijah is being given the opportunity to do in his despair, is to remember. To remember as he's eating this food that just miraculously was there when he wakes up, when he was fed by ravens. To remember that he lived with a widow, and the flour and the oil didn't run out. Don't you remember, Elijah? I was with you. still here. And the angel invites him to go deeper, and he says the journey is too... Actually, it takes twice. Sometimes it takes us a little while to get it because he goes back to sleep, and the angel wakes him back up. And then he says it's time for you to eat because God is inviting you to meet him on his mountain. And Elijah travels another 200 miles south to Mount Horeb. And when he gets there, uh, God says to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What a funny question. It's not like God is, you know, whoa, what are you doing here? I didn't expect to see you. Do we have an appointment? It's perfectly planned. Perfect question. Because he's wanting to get Elijah down to his baseline. He's wanting to break Elijah down to what's really at the bottom of all this. And you see Elijah in his response. He says, well, thanks for asking, God. And he unloads. He says, you know what? I'm the only one left. Everybody has fallen away from you. None of this worked. Your prophets have been killed. They're tearing down your altars. I'm the only one left. And oh yeah, they're trying to kill me. My car's broken down. My house has fallen apart. I had a terrible week and I just lost my job. Where are you at? Wasn't supposed to go this way. Things were supposed to happen differently. I'm not supposed to be on the run for my life. Things were not supposed to go this way. And I think that to understand God's question, 
It's important. First, one, he wants to know exactly what is in Elijah's heart. He says, unload. Be honest. Let's get down to it here. What are you doing here, Elijah? And yet at the same time, he's breaking Elijah down because Elijah is actually a little bit hypocritical. You see, Elijah is so frustrated that Israel would disregard the very fire where God revealed his power. And he's frustrated because he said, you know, this just happened. Your fire came down and none of them trusted you. The complete opposite happened. That they see your power and then they don't respond in trust and in faith and they didn't return to you. Well, yeah, but what are you doing here, Elijah? Didn't you see my power too? You see, when Jezebel issues her decree that she wants Elijah dead, Elijah doesn't stop and say, okay, she wants me dead, what next? He doesn't stop and pray and trust in this God who has displayed his power. He runs. Because things didn't go how he thought they would. He had his unmet expectations. And he was afraid and he ran. And so he's, afraid, he's frustrated that Israel didn't respond in faith when they saw God's power. And God, in, in a way, is trying to get Elijah to understand. Didn't you decree my words that there would be no rain for three years and there was no rain? Didn't you see the flower and the oil? Didn't you see the dead raised? Didn't you actually yourself call down the fire? What are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you on the run? In essence, Elijah has done the same thing Israel has, that after God's power has been displayed, it has not caused him to turn to God and seek him in faith. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, am I saying that Elijah is the same as a pagan Israelite that's worshiping Baal? No, I'm not. But we do need to see something very important here. The last two weeks, we spent our entire time talking about when drought and thirst and despair, it's when these moments happen, we do one of two things. We either draw near to God or we double down and decide what's best for us. We go our own way doing our own thing. But it's in this story that you see something a little bit more nuanced about what it looks like to draw near to God. That even when we do draw near to God, we still do it by deciding what's best for us. We still think what we know what is best. God, I'm going to draw near to you, but I really think this is the best thing to happen. This is what Elijah is coming to understand, that even when we draw near to God, we have an agenda. Here's what I mean. Last week, uh, I, I challenged you to ask, knock, and seek. Ask Jesus for that consuming fire that only he can give. Ask Jesus to give you that consuming fire that begins to burn up all of the filthy parts that betray us and lead us down the wrong path and to also consume us and fill us with new life and new passion and new joys. To fill us with his power. Maybe you did. But what happens whenever that prayer begins to be work? And it doesn't happen as quickly as you want it to. What begins to happen when it doesn't, things don't happen as quickly as we would like? When the outcome and the results aren't what we thought they should be? We draw near to God and yet we're actually drawing near to something else. We want what we want. We draw near to God and yes, we want good things, but we draw near to God and we say, you know what, I want to step deeply into community. I know I need to. 
So I'm going to draw near to God in community. But then whenever I'm in community, nobody values me the way I want to be valued. I don't feel as included as I want to be. I don't feel as loved as I want to, so I'm just not going to go. Or we say, I know I need to work on my marriage. I've got to pursue God in my marriage. I need to draw near to him, humble myself. I need to draw near and love my spouse the way Christ has loved me. And you sacrifice and you try to love them in all the small ways. But then over time, they don't even notice. They don't appreciate the ways that I love them. Are we something that happens in our lives that's very difficult and very challenging and very hard and it puts us on our knees and we say, God, I need you. So we crack open our Bibles and we just pray and pray and pray. But then when that situation is resolved and everything's okay, that Bible just starts collecting dust. And we don't pray anymore. It's not God that we're wanting in those moments. We draw near to God, but as we do, our true motivation rises to the surface. We have an agenda even in our pursuit of God. And when those things aren't matched, we fall into doubt and despair, depression, despondency, and we become frustrated. Elijah's problem in this passage is the same as our problem. That as we move closer to God, it reveals the very last idol, and it's the hardest idol to fall. It's the idol of self. It's the idol of self-indulgence, self-promotion, self-determination. That we decide what's best for us. And as we move closer to God, we slowly realize those two things are not the same thing. They don't mix. And that we worship at that altar. And you can hear Elijah say it. I, 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 me, me, me. I have done all these things. I am the only one left. Me, me, me. And he's indicting God that the way this turned out is not how it was supposed to happen. God, I offered all the right sacrifices for you, and this is how it turns out. But the problem is, is all he's done is essentially carved God into his own image. He's made him into an idol where I give you what you want, you give me what I want. But we do not have an idol. We have a person as our God. And it does not work that way. He does not work that way whatsoever. So we become frustrated. Even when we offer all the right things and it doesn't turn out, we can easily crumble. But we're supposed to. There's a great story that Elizabeth Elliot tells, the late, or the, uh, late wife, I believe, of Jim Elliot, the famous martyr. She tells a parable. It's not in the scriptures, but it's, it's very profound. She says, Jesus came to the disciples one day and he said, I want you to carry a stone for me. And so Peter walks over and he just picks up this little bitty stone, puts it in his pocket and carries it all day. At the end of the day, Jesus says, I want you to take out the stone you carried for me. So he gets it out and as he takes it out, it turns into bread. And Jesus said, this is your dinner. Peter's like, well, that's not very much. He goes to bed hungry. Next day, Jesus says, I want you to carry a stone for me. So Peter goes and finds like the biggest stone he can grab that he thinks he can carry and trudge around with all day long, and he picks that one. And at the end of the day, Jesus comes to the disciples, and he says, I want you to take out the stone you carried for me. And Peter's got it right there. He's ready to go. He says, I want you to go throw it in the river over there. So Peter walks over and he tosses it in the river. And he's standing there by the riverside and Jesus walks up to him and he says, what's wrong, Peter? 
Peter says, well, Jesus, I did everything you asked. Jesus says, yes, you did. But who did you do it for? Who did you do it for? As we move closer to God, he is going to expose the ways that we worship at the altar of self. Self-promotion, self-indulgence, self-interest, self-determination. He's going to challenge all the ways that we think the story should go, all the results and outcomes that we want. But inevitably, when our agenda and God's agenda do not match up, it is difficult. And we do the same thing Elijah does. We run. We run. Because it's easier to give up than to go deeper. But God is gracious to Elijah. And he meets him in that running. Elijah, when he's at the, the text says he gets to the cave. Not a cave, the cave. Mount Horeb, you know by a different name, it's Mount Sinai. The place where God met with Moses. And it says the cave because it's really translated the opening, the cleft, because this is the very place that when Moses said, God, show me your glory. God takes Moses and he says, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. I will hide you in the cave and my glory will pass before you. But this story is a little bit different. He invites Elijah to a place where he thinks he knows the story, but it's different this time because he invites Elijah out of the cave. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? He tells him he wants him to come out of the cave. This is a very difficult passage. And if you read it, it's hard because of how abrupt it is. God doesn't explain himself. You just have these magnificent events, and then God says to go, and it just feels anticlimactic. It's a hard passage. But I think we have to dig deeper to understand what it is that God is trying to communicate to Elijah. He says, Elijah, I want you to come out of the cave. But before he does, the wind picks up. It's a wind so powerful. Just imagine this as we, talk, as we just work through it. A wind so powerful that it's breaking the mountain apart. It's cracking the rocks. But God is not in the wind. And you have an earthquake that is shaking the mountain. But God is not in the earthquake. You have a fire that comes and envelops the mountain. But God is not in the fire. And then... You get the sound of a silent, gentle whisper. Quite frankly, nobody knows how to interpret that little phrase. Nobody really knows what it means, but it's this stillness, this silence, this quiet voice. And we know God is in that silence because Elijah covers his face and he walks out of the cave to meet with God. He steps out of the cave into his presence. And God doesn't explain himself, but I think he's asking Elijah a very important question underlying all of this. A question that lies just below the surface. He's saying, Elijah, do you want the wind, the earthquake, and the fire without my presence? Or do you just want me? Isn't that what you're after? Are you simply wanting my power to be exercised how you want it? You want the earth, you want the earthquake, you want the wind, you want the fire. You just want me to fix these circumstances. You want my power to go out. 
and do what you want? Or what about if all you have is no fanfare, none of that, all you have is silence in me? Is that enough for you? Just me. Is that enough for you to continue to participate? What do you want, Elijah? Do you want my outcome to, or do you want my power to make all the outcomes? Are you just after my power, the evidence of my power? Or are you really after me? We have to ask ourselves the same question. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? It's one of the most fundamental questions of our discipleship. What are we doing here? Are we here because we just want God to fix our circumstances because we trust that he has the power to do so? Or are we here to seek him alone? Just him. If God never does anything, never answers a single one of your prayers, and never makes your life easy, and never gives you anything that you actually want, and he says, I'm just going to give you me, is that enough? That is a hard question. And yet it's the one he asks, Elijah, what are you doing here? And then he says, Elijah, I want you to go and return the way that you came. There's work to do. I want you to go back to that very place that has caused all the fear, all the despondency, all the depression, and all the sadness and anxiety. I want you to go right back to that place. And I want you to anoint a pagan king named Haziel that's king over Assyria. I want you to anoint Jehu, who will become the king of Judah. And I want you to anoint Elisha, who is your predecessor, and will replace you. I have already told the story, Elijah. I have everything worked out. I have every detail worked out. I am the God that sets up kings and removes kings. I do what I want, when I want, how I want. I don't ask anybody. I don't ask permission. My story's bigger than you. It's better than the one you're trying to tell, but I still invite you into it. I am with you. Is that good enough for you? Maybe none of these details that I have worked out are quite what you thought, but is my story good enough for you? Is the story I'm trying to tell okay with you? Is my presence enough for you? And the issue is we cannot separate God's presence from his purposes because we can't pretend as though we're really going to have this experience of God's presence if we're unwilling to participate in the mission that he's called us to. It doesn't work that way. His presence and his purposes go hand in hand. So he is really asking Elijah some deep questions. Is my presence alone good enough for you? But if you want to participate in the story that I am telling, you have to stop trying to tell it yourself. I've already told it. I have everything worked out. You can be freed up from all of your desire for all the outcomes and results that you want. I am with you. And I am enough. And evidently, the issue of of God's presence with us and our perception of it with us is of utmost importance because it's the very last words that Jesus says before he leaves this earth. He says, I want you to go into all the world baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and making disciples. I want you to go in all of those dark and scary places. But I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Is that good enough for you? 
Because this story I have already worked out. You will not tell it. I give you the gift of participation. Do you want what you want? Do you just want your, my power to go out? Or do you just want my presence? And it's in that Great Commission call that it's the same question that gets asked to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? Do you want to keep running? Or do you want to go deeper? And for some of you, it's time to stop running. It is time to stop running. You are exhausted, and it's time to admit it. You are utterly worn out. You have been trying to tell a story that has left you with nothing but fear and anxiety, sadness, loneliness, and depression. And Christ himself has invited you into a story that is immutable, a story that will not change, and a story where every detail is worked out. And you are invited into that story where he tells you over and over and over again, come and participate. I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. It's time to go back to that place that you don't want to face. It's time to go back to that place of fear and anxiety and doubt and desperation because that's where I am going to reveal myself to you. There's work to do. And we can go back to that marriage, to that community, to that job, and we can know, no matter how dark it gets, that he is drawing us out of that cave to remind us that he is with us. So, what are you doing here? Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you, uh, you would commit this story to our hearts. We really try to think that the balance can be equal and yet it cannot be. You invite us into a story that exposes the ways that we try to promote ourselves. It exposes how deep sin goes into our hearts. But I thank you for this story because we need it. We don't need some dolled up pretty version of faith. We need it as it actually is. We thank you that you do not lie to us. We thank you that you do not tell us some pretty picture, but you give us honesty and you give us reality as it is and you give us yourself and you show us who we are. We ask that you would continue to show us who we are and that in those moments of despair and doubt, we would not run, but we would stop and we would recognize that over and over and over again in your scriptures, these are the places where you reveal yourself to us. And we don't have to give up but it's an opportunity to go deeper and to participate in your story in a way that we never could before. Help us to understand that your story is beautiful and it is life to us. To the one who is tired, to the one who is in despair and depressed, and even the one who is suicidal here today. Would you meet with them? And in that quietness, would you tell them that you are with them and you are all they need? We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen.